You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Rekindling the Reformation, Episode 4 with Walter Fite. How are you all this evening? I'm okay. You're probably thinking, has he gone nuts? <laughs> and uh, does he know how to spell? I assure you there's nothing wrong with the spelling. So let's dive into this one and see where we end up. Well, what does this mean, the beamable, sustainable princess? Not princess, princess. Well, I'll leave it to your imagination as we go through this seminar to see what this exactly entails. And what has the Prince of Wales got to do with anything? This comes straight off his web page. He is beaming there, isn't he? Yes, he's beaming. But maybe he can even be beamable, who knows? Is Prince Charles the Antichrist? You will find if you browse the web pages, web page after web page, book upon book upon book, that he is the Antichrist. Yes, you will find lots of literature if you browse it. They will claim his name comes to 666 if you calculate it. They will give all these informative informations about why he is the Antichrist. And uh, this is one web page that talks about him. And it mentions the news brief, Wing Prince is Savior of the World. Fox News Life March 7, 2002. London, the Prince of Wales is to be immortalized in a bronze, as a bronze muscular winged god dressed in nothing more than a loincloth. He will be the first living member of the royal family to have a life-size statue dedicated in his honor. Although the prince is destined to become defender of the faith when he becomes king of England, the inscription on the statue in Brazil will honor him as Savior of the world. Hmm. I guess this is a play upon his environmental impact. When he talks about the environment and uh, the Rio conference which took place where he played a very prominent role and that is why they are terming him such. But... Of course, those who like to speculate grab hold of these things and say, he is the man behind the scenes. He's the one who's being groomed as the final Antichrist. If you know your Bible, then you will not fall into that trap, right? But that doesn't mean that it isn't interesting. Everything in the world is interesting. And I've discovered something in my life. I used to hate history when I was a kid at school. I couldn't stand history. And then when I discovered truth and all of these things, history suddenly exploded. And it became so interesting. And I became interested in archaeology and I became interested in 
the sands of time and all of these issues. And history is more amazing than fiction. Much more amazing. Unfortunately, we don't always hear the right history. And often history is rewritten to suit the times we live in. And uh, in my own country, there are totally new history books and curriculums now than there were before. And the role players seem to have gone topsy-turvy. Those that were on top are now at the bottom. Those that were at the bottom are now on top. So history is very subjective. It depends on how you look at it. So Prince Charles, what can you tell us? And where do you fit into the picture? And if you do fit into the picture, does it matter at all? What does the Bible say? Who is the Antichrist? Well, the reformers were all unanimous that the criteria in Daniel could only fit the papacy and no one else. The correlations are so numerous, they said, so precise. And if you remember their words, fitting like Chubb's key into one of Chubb's locks. So that only that system could qualify for all the features listed in the book of Daniel, in the prophecies of Paul, and in the prophecies of Revelation. So that was the Antichrist, and unfortunately, Prince Charles just doesn't qualify. There is no way that he ruled for 1,260 years. He's too young for that, isn't he? And there's no way that he changed God's law and all of these issues. He just doesn't fit the picture. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have a role to play as a very prominent royal member. Well, here is his webpage. And he is the founder of the International Business Leader Forum. And there's a webpage, you can go and look at it. And it says over there, the International Business Leaders Forum puts business at the heart of sustainable development. Key number one to the title. So he's a prince for sustainable development. And here are the IBLF's global footprint. This interactive map catalogs the global work and influence of the IBLF since its creation in 1990. Founded by His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, we are an independent, not-for-profit organization currently supported by over 100 of the world's leading businesses. It's quite impressive. They're virtually active in every country in the world. And there is the big global footprint map. You will see they are active in the United States. They are active in Canada. And all the other countries have the dot in them. So he's a highly, highly influential man behind the scenes. Correlating and being the chairman of all of these mega business conglomerates. You know, he who swings the axe in those circles has a lot of clout. So don't underestimate the power of the man. He is the chairman of those boards. 
The Prince of Wales Business Leaders Forum, what does it tell us about him? In 1990, organizational meeting in Charleston was called Stakeholders, the Challenge in a Global Market. And there were 100 CEOs from major multinational organizations that attended. The mission of the Prince of Wales Business Leader Forum is to promote continuous improvement in the practice of good corporate citizenship and sustainable development internationally as a natural part of the successful business operations. The term sustainable development is in vogue these days. It's being used everywhere. And it's actually a code word for something very different. It aims to work with members and partners to, number one, demonstrate that business has an essential and creative role to play in the prosperity of local communities as partners in development, particularly in economies in transition. Business, government, community in partnership. To raise awareness for the values of the corporate responsibility in international business practice. Encourage partnership between business, communities, as an effective means of promoting sustainable economic development. Doesn't that sound nice? Sounds very nice. The Prince of Wales Business Leaders Forum operates in 26 countries, concentrating on post-communist countries and developing economies, and they are active in every single nation. Fascinating. So you're very powerful. Now, what does that mean? Business, government, in partnership with the community. Hmm. What is fascism? Through public-private partnerships, the balance of power shifts from the people to the partner who has the most money. As the power shifts to the deepest pockets, that's the corporation, we have then moved into fascism. Rule by big reinvented government and big business. One, the downsizing of federal government in order to fit into the future global governance. And secondly, the government's shift to privatization of public services through public-private partnerships. Have you noticed that mayors, the mayor of a city, mayors have become more and more and more prominent in the world today? Have you noticed that? In the old days, you never bothered about what the mayor did. But today, you hear the mayor of New York, the mayor of this, the mayor of that. They're all very, very prominent people with legislative clout. And we in our country, where I come from, are seeing business and government in partnership with the community. More and more and more and more. And what it basically means is that if we want new roads... To uplift the community? Well, then government goes into partnership with business and employs the downtrodden community in this new venture and every road becomes a toll road. The community works 
And the community gets the privilege of having to pay extra for every kilometer they drive on that road. What a privilege! I'm so grateful when I travel on our new roads, spanking new, and I have to fork out 50 South African bucks every time I go around a corner. I might as well walk. Fascism and the empowerment of corporations. Fascism. The term comes from the Latin fasces, meaning a bundle of rods with an axe. The symbol of state power carried ahead of the consul in ancient Rome. In fact, the ancient Roman consul would walk onto the top of the Capitol. And he would put his standard there, and if the people bowed down to him and accepted his authority, then he placed the fasciae. On his standard. Wow. Fascinating. Do we have Capitols outside of Rome today? Do we have Capitol buildings? Do we have Capitol hills? Just a question. Fascism began, modern fascism that is, March 23, 1990, under the leader, 1919, under the leadership of Mussolini. Mussolini was funded primarily by business groups and individuals such as Cornelius van der Bult. He was also supported by American bankers. And during the World War II, the three countries with fascist governments were, as you know, Italy, Germany, and Japan, allies of each other. These same countries are current members of the Group of Seven, says Bertram Gross. So these countries have mega cloud, but they're defeated countries, aren't they? They're defeated countries. It's amazing how the countries that lost the war became the economic hub of the world. Isn't that incredible? The word sustainable represents control. If everything has to be sustainable, then every aspect must be controlled. So every area is supposed to be uplifted. The community is supposed to benefit. You're going to get a new sewerage system in the community. Government, business is going to go into partnership on behalf of the community. And this beautiful facility will be built with much fanfare. And your pocket will be emptied more because now you have to pay an extra levy to make it viable. That's the benefit that you get. We need a new sense of responsibility for a new century. This is Bill Clinton's speech in 1997, his inaugural address. Listen to the buzzwords. We need a new sense of responsibility for a new century. With a new vision of government, a new sense of responsibility, a new spirit of community, we will sustain America's journey. The promise we sought in a new land, we will find in a land of new promise. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> when I came to America the first time many, many years ago, what was that hit song? I think it was Neil Diamond. We're coming to America. Do you remember that? Man, they pumped it out. Everybody wanted to come to America. And now nobody wants to go to America. They're dead scared to go through the border. It's incredible. 
Here I am, a pretty nice citizen, I thought. And I went down to do a lecture series down there in the south of America, near New Orleans. And I saw the Mississippi for the first time. How exciting. And here was a Mississippi steamer. Ooh, what will a tourist do when he sees that? He'll pull out his camera and he'll take a picture. I'd just taken the picture when this police car rolled up next to me. Spread him! What you doing? I'm taking a picture uh, of the Mississippi. Why are you taking a picture of the Mississippi? Um, because it's there? <laughs> Half an hour. The same question. Over and over and over again. I thought it was going nuts. He said, and why are you taking a picture? Then he changed to, why are you taking a picture of the Mississippi? I said, because I'm a tourist. My wife is not here. I want to show her the Mississippi. He went through everything I had on me. He went through my, my papers. He put me through the computer. And I stood there for an hour. Until my friend came and rescued me and said, What's going on here? Why are you keeping this man? He took a picture of the Mississippi. Man, I'll be careful if I take a picture of the Mississippi again. I'll first look around and see what's going on. Well, here we are. We have a new, the promise we sought in a new land, we will find again in a land of new promise. It's going to be a sustainable world. It will be magnificent. Where does the philosophy come from and what does it mean? Well, let's go to the Soviet Constitution of 1977. It reads, In the interests of the present and future generations, the necessary steps are taken in the USSR to protect and make scientific rational use of the land and its mineral and water resources and the plant and animal kingdoms to preserve the purity of air and water, ensure reproduction of natural wealth and improve the human environment. Fascinating. They were the champions of clean air, weren't they, in the USSR? Have you ever been there? <laughs> wow, you must see the smokestacks. In the executive sum summary of the book, Business as Partners in Development, Creating Wealth for Countries, Companies and Communities, the authors write, In most cases, the debate is no longer about extreme alternatives, about communism versus capitalism, the free market versus state control, democracy versus dictatorship, but about finding common good. This new watchword of a world in distress and sustainable development is the new word for gaining control over every single aspect of humanity including the governments and the individuals. Here are the Knights of Columbus, this Catholic organization that George Bush spoke to and praised so profusely. Look at their symbol. There it is. The fasciae. Fascinating. They are, of course, a Catholic organization pushing for Catholic governance in the United States of America. 
And uh, if we read over here, for today Rome considers the fascist regime as the nearest to its dogmas and interests. We have not merely the reverend Jesuit father, Coughlin, praising Mussolini's Italy as a Christian democracy, but Civilta Cattolica, which is the official mouthpiece of the Jesuits, by the way, saying quite frankly, quote, Fascism is the regime that corresponds most closely to the concepts of the Church of Rome. So that's what Rome wants. And sustainable development, which requires government and business in partnership with the community, is fascism. What do you own under fascism? Nothing. You're called a partner. But partner just is a new word for slave. That's all it is. Because you own nothing, you may work in the process, and you may pay for the benefit. <laughs> what is that other than being controlled by a new feudal system? Now let's have a look at the religion and the Prince of Wales. This comes from the book Prince Charles, the Sustainable Prince. It's quite an interesting book. Not happy with the Christian faith, according to his biographers, he began a tentative inquiry into the field of what its practitioners referred to as psychical research, or parapsychology, and which its adversaries ridiculed as dabbling in the occult. Well, he's well known to have said that he has regular conversations with uh, Lord Mountbatten, who is no longer with us. So he must be dealing with some of these issues. In the mid-70s, South African-born writer, you know, these South Africans, they're everywhere. I wish, you know, they wouldn't be so problematic. But anyway, this South African writer, explorer, and mystic, Lawrence van der Post, became a spiritual counselor to Charles. It was van der Post who helped him explore the natural world as well as the inner world where the outer depends on the inner. He went on to study Buddhism and Hinduism, the convictions that Charles began to form, what he was soon to say about alternative medicine, architecture, the environment, sprang from a spiritual feeling for the mystical in mankind. That's interesting. He was also very interested in what is called the Gaia hypothesis. Charles was greatly influenced by James Lovelock, who formulated the Gaia hypothesis which today is known as the worship of the earth. Another way to understand holism is to realize that it perverts and inverts Genesis 1. We spoke about that last night. Where he is equal, the human being, with the earth, the plants, and the animals. It's a form of pantheism. It means man evolves. Holism is evolution at its finest. Charles elevates the position of the environment to one of dominance over man. Charles maintains that the environment is key to changing society. So there are many people looking at what he's doing, and that's where they're getting all these ideas from. But uh, is it really he, or is it a smokescreen? Well, let's have a look at the news. This is the BBC News in 2006. They called Charles a modern prince. Isn't that nice of them? He takes a keen interest in architecture, young people, the environment, and health. Supports organic farming, 
as far back as 1984. Is there anything wrong with any of those issues? Absolutely not. Long before it became a mass consumer issue and his vociferous beliefs in, conversa- in conservation has often been ahead of his time. The prince's view that when, listen carefully, the prince's view that when king, he might change his title of defender of the faith to defender of faith. To reflect multicultural modern Britain cheered many. So this modern prince doesn't want to be defender of the faith, which is linked to Christianity alone, but he wants to be defender of faith. So Prince Charles recognizes the multicultural nature of modern Britain. Now my question is this. The Vatican and Great Britain, are they at loggerheads? Now, it's interesting that there are only two surviving ancient monarchies. There are many monarchies, but the two oldest ones that can take their lineage all the way back happen to be Rome and Great Britain. Let's read. The only two people in the world who share the same status, power, please note that this person is saying same, but we'll see whether that is so. The same status, power, and position are the Pope and the Queen. The Papal See is considered the world's oldest authority on royalty. The Almanac de Gotha, which is that, that's the most revered mouthpiece for who is royalty in the world, the Almanac de Gotha, says they are the oldest monarchy in the world. So the papacy is the oldest continuous monarchy in the world. Therefore, that makes the Pope a king, with the cardinals of the church considered to be equal to the sons of kings. The heads of a world religion, the ruler of a recognized country, the Vatican, and the queen comes from this world's second oldest monarchy. She is the head of the Anglican Church and is the ruler of Britain. As her titles show that the army, navy and air force of the United Kingdom report to her. They are literally Her Majesty's Army, Her Majesty's Navy, Her Majesty's Air Force. And in your country, Her Majesty's Canada, right? Look on your notes and you will see her there. So... She is a very important person. And she must be a prominent ruler to take into account. Or is it so? Today I want to discuss history with you. And when we've discussed history, we'll go to the future. We'll come to our present time. I call this the battle over Britain. You know the battle of Britain, don't you? But this is somewhat different. This is the battle over Britain. And I want to start this battle when Britain was squarely in the Roman Catholic camp. And a king was ruling, and the dates are over there. He ruled as king, 1154 to 1189. As king of England, he was also king of Scotland. And his name was Henry II. And there he is. And this is where history gets a twist. Fascinating twist. Now let's jump to a somewhat more modern time. 
2nd of February 2005, that's when the Pope died, and the newspapers in the world recorded his great activities, and in England they remembered the prayers as the Pope visited the UK in 1982. A memorable moment when the Pope climbed off his aeroplane in his customary way, he kissed the ground, showing that the territory was whose? His. Now it's always interesting to watch what these globalists are doing. And in the afternoon, a crowd of 80,000 gathered for Mass at the Wembley Stadium in what was billed as the first of the Pope's outdoor spectaculars. They sung. Careful note of what they had to sing. He's got the whole world in his hands. And they clapped their hands as he arrived in his Pope mobile. He has the whole world in his hands. That's what he sang. This was the first visit of a Pope to that nation in centuries. Now, what else did he do? The Pope met with Prince Charles and the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, the Archbishop of Canterbury is apparently subject to whom? To the Queen. Because she's the head of the Anglican Church. Following the death of the Pope, people in Kent have been remembering his historic visit to Canterbury in 1982. John Paul II became the first pontiff ever to visit the UK when he made the six-day tour of the country. Fascinating. First one, and he stayed six days. How many days? Six. He visited Canterbury Cathedral on the 29th of May to say prayer with the then Archbishop of Canterbury, who happened to be Robert Runcie. There he is in the picture. Streets were lined by 25,000 people, and the Pope told the congregation it was a day which centuries and generations have awaited. Wow, this is fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Now let's go back to a little bit of history and note what the Pope did. This is the BBC News, Saturday the 2nd, 2005. The BBC reports, The Pope and Dr. Runcie knelt in silent prayer at the place of the martyrdom, the spot where Sir Thomas A. Beckett was murdered in 1170. Now remember that nothing that they do is without purpose. And here the Archbishop and the Pope go and they kneel down there where all those centuries ago Thomas Beckett had been murdered. Hmm. Here is a relief of Thomas Beckett's murder and you have the four knights who overheard Henry II talking about this pestilent monk and they thought to do the king a favor by getting rid of him and they murdered him. And uh, the honorary canon of the cathedral when the Pope was there said, quote, It was a very moving moment to see the Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury praying in the very spot where the most famous 
Of all archbishops, Thomas A. Beckett had fallen so many centuries ago. I would beg to differ on that point. But uh, who am I if I favor Cranmer over this gentleman? But nevertheless, he was here, according to them, the most famous archbishop that Canterbury ever saw. Now, why did the Pope kneel there? Why was it significant that he said, centuries have waited, has the whole world in his hand? Why was this significant? What happened all those centuries ago in the time of Henry II? Why was Archbishop Becket murdered? Well, let's read about it. In the tradition of Norman kings, Henry II was keen to dominate the church like the state. Here was a king, he said, I'm boss of my own country. And you church will listen to me. At Clarendon Palace on the 30th of January 1164, the king set out 16 constitutions aimed at decreasing ecclesiastical interference from Rome. Rome, you take second place in my country, I'm first. Do you do that to Rome and get away with it? But the newly appointed Archbishop of Canterbury refused to ratify the proposals. Henry was characteristically stubborn. And on the 8th of October, 1164, he called the Archbishop Thomas Becket before a royal council. The Archbishop knew what was coming, so he fled. He fled to France, and there he was under the protection of Henry's rival, Louis VII of France. In 1170, the Pope was considering excommunicating all of Britain. Only Henry's agreement that Becket could return to England without penalty prevented this fate. So here was a war between church and state. Thomas A. Becket was murdered in 1170. The king was angry that he had to give in to this pressure. And he made these remarks about this pestilent monk. And his knights went and solved his problem. Actually, they created a big problem. History is fascinating. You know, there's an old saying which says, Rome never forgets. Well, Henry's knights wanted to do the king a favor. Just three years later, Becker was canonized and revered as a martyr. It took three years and he was a martyr. Against secular interference in God's church. Now you can understand why the Pope knelt there. Centuries later, Pope Alexander III had declared Thomas Becket a saint. And historian John Harvey believes it was yet another failure in Henry's religious policy, an arena which he seemed to lack adequate subtlety. And politically, Henry had to sign the Compromise of Avranche, which removed from the secular courts almost all jurisdiction over the clergy. So the king had to sign that he had no rights to control the clergy. This compromise in 1172 marked the reconciliation of Henry II of England with the Catholic Church after the murder of Thomas Becket. Henry was purged of any guilt in Becket's murder, but he agreed that the secular courts had no jurisdiction over the clergy, with the exception of high treason, highway robbery, and arson. Fascinating. Now what's even more interesting, 
he had to be punished. Now who is higher? The one who is punishing or the one who is being punished? Well, let's look at history. The murder had far-reaching consequences for England, but the immediate result was that Henry II had to make peace with the church. He did this four years later by performing penance at Canterbury Cathedral. He was beaten by 80 monks while wearing sackcloths and ashes. There is the picture. There's the poor king. Here are the monks beating the king. Now what's a king? Hmm. And spent the night in vigil at St. Thomas Becket's tomb. The church had wasted no time and had canonized Becket. He also had to promise to raise money for the crusades and to either mount a crusade or make a pilgrimage. He did neither. There was enough to do at home. So he was in trouble. This king was in trouble and he was severely reprimanded and he got the hiding of his life. Fine. Now let's go a little bit further into history. Just, just a couple of years. Now England was pretty humiliated. Can you imagine how they felt? Their king was beaten up by monks. And uh, they had to pay all this money, supposedly. Well, King John's concession of England and Ireland. Now, King John is very famous. There he is, King 1167 to 1216. In the matter of the election and installation of Stephen Langton as Archbishop of Canterbury, King John, in the words of Pope Innocent III, had by impious persecution tried to enslave the entire English church. So here this next king comes, and he says, I don't want that archbishop, I want another one. And the Pope says, who do you think you are? I say what goes. Did we have a little altercation with China and the present Pope just recently? Oh, it was very interesting. You don't tell the Pope who's boss. And he said, King... You will listen to me. You will appoint the one I want. Hmm. As a result, the Pope laid on England an interdict, 1208 to 14, a sort of religious strike, wherein no religious service was to be performed for anyone guilty or innocent. When, that didn't, when this didn't work, the king himself was excommunicated. Now you must remember how afraid those people were. If you weren't with the church, you were lost forever. The people were fear-struck. The king had been excommunicated. Caving in under that pressure, John wrote a letter of concession to the Pope, hoping to have the interdict and the excommunication lifted. The year was 1213. John's concession, which in effect made England a fiefdom of Rome. Please note where I've taken this from. This comes from sources of British history. So England became a fiefdom to Rome, worked like a charm, the satisfied Pope, lifted the yoke he had hung on the people of England and their king. But that wasn't enough. King, put it there. Put it there. So the king went and he signed a declaration and he relinquished the crown. There is the picture of the crown being placed at the feet of the Roman prelate. The crown of England, Rome, is yours. And I will rent it back 
atrophy. Fascinating history. This is mind-boggling. Nobody even thinks about it today. Let's carry on. Now, this is the concession he signed, and I'm going to bore you by actually reading it. Because you cannot get more interesting history today than that. This is the medieval source book, John the First's Concession of England to the Pope. This is what he said. John, by the grace of God, King of England, Lord of Ireland, Duke of Normandy, etc., etc., to all the faithful of Christ who shall look upon this present charter, greetings. We wish it to be known to all through this our charter, notice the words, charter, furnished with our seal, that inasmuch as we have offended in many ways God and our mother, the Holy Church, and in consequence are known to have very much needed the divine mercy and cannot offer anything worthy for making due satisfaction to God and to the church unless we humiliate ourselves and our kingdom. We wishing to humiliate ourselves for him who hum humiliated himself for us unto death, the grace of the Holy Spirit inspiring, not induced by force or compelled by fear, but of our good, own good and spontaneous will and by the common counsel of our barons, do offer and freely concede to God and his holy apostles Peter and Paul and to our mother the holy Roman church and to our Lord Pope Innocent and his Catholic successors, the whole kingdom of England, the whole kingdom of Ireland, with all their rights and opportunities. So any future gain of that kingdom is conceded to whom? To the Pope. For the remission of our own sins and those of our whole race as well for the living and for the dead. Now receiving and holding them as it were as vassals. What is a vassal? One who serves. From God and the Roman church in the presence of that prudent man, Paul the subdeacon of the household of the Lord Pope, we perform and swear fealty. That means subservience. We swear fealty. To them, to him, our aforesaid Lord Pope Innocent and his Catholic successors in the Roman church. According to the form apprehended and the presence of the Lord Pope, if we shall be able to come before him, we shall do liege homage. Wow! We are merely vassals to the Pope. Binding our successors and our heirs by our wife forever. In similar manner, to perform fealty and show homage to him who shall be chief pontiff at that time. Who is it today? Benedict. Well, here's an interesting document. And to the Roman church without demur. That's it. Done deal. As a sign, moreover, of this our own, we will and establish perpetual obligation and concession forever. We will establish that from the proper and special revenues of our set kingdom, and then he talks about how much money he's going to have to pay for renting back the privilege of the crown from the 
real owner, who is now who? Who is the Pope? Who becomes the land lord. The word land lord comes from the lend lord. Now when you are a landlord, you receive rent, and for that you get certain privileges. So here is what they had to pay. We shall receive yearly a thousand marks sterling, namely at the Feast of St. Michael, etc., and then all these other fees that they had to pay, saving to us and to our heirs our right, liberties, and regalia. So our crown, our pomp, our glory, we have rented back from the Pope for this fee. We bind ourselves and our successors not to act counter to them. And now look carefully. If we or any one of our successors shall presume to attempt this, whosoever he be, unless being duly warned he come to his kingdom and his senses, he shall lose his right to the kingdom and this charter of our obligation and concession shall always remain firm. So if we break this agreement, we lose the crown forever. Wow. What happened? I'm excited. I want to know. I hope you are. Where did the king sign this? Now please note this. The plot thickens. This comes from the select historical documents of the Middle Ages. I, myself, this is the king, bearing witness in the house of the Knights Templars near Dover, in the presence of Marcher, Master Archbishop of Dublin, Master J. Bishop of Norwich, and then he goes through the whole list of who there was present. And he put his signature to it. So the crown belongs to Rome, but the king rented it back. Now, did they ever break the agreement? Well, that was a lot of money. A thousand pound ach, mark sterling, plus the other fees that had to be paid, plus the Peter's penny that had to be paid. Britain groaned under this king. This is where the legends come in of uh, the time of Robin Hood and all of those. Although history has been distorted there. The timing is wrong, but the event is interesting. Well, King John caved under the pressure of his barons who couldn't afford the taxes. And so he signed the Magna Carta on June 15, 1215. And the Magna Carta is a famous document. And in this document, he promised to pay respect to what the barons and the lords of the empire said, more so than what someone else said. And so they refused from then on to pay the thousand marks sterling. What did they do when they refused to pay that? They broke the agreement. King John broke the terms of this charter by signing the Magna Carta in June 15, 1215. Remember the penalty for breaking it? Was the loss of the crown, the right to the kingdom, to the Pope and the Roman Church? 
It says so quite plainly, to formally and lawfully take the crown from the royal monarch in England by an act of declaration on the August 24, 1215. Pope Innocent annulled the Magna Carta. Later in the year, he placed an interdict prohibition on the entire British Empire. And from that time until today, the English monarchy and the entire British crown belong legally to the Pope. Now, England wasn't always very good to the Pope. And there were things like reformations. And King Henry, who said, blow the Pope, I don't care about him. He had other interests. His was more an uh, androgenic problem than anything else. Well, let's not go into the details of that. Here is the picture of the king signing the Magna Carta. Breaking the agreement. Only three of the original clauses on the Magna Carta are still law. All the rest has been rescinded today. Please note what is still law. So this portion is still okay. One defends the freedom and the rights of the English church. Another confirms the liberties and customs of London and the other towns, but the third is the most famous, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled, nor will we proceed with force against him except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. To no one will we sell, to, do, to no one deny or delay right of justice. It has resonant echoes in the American Bill of Rights, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Everything else has been rescinded. So Rome really owns the kingdom. Theirs is the crown. And for the monarchs today to have the crown is actually a pretense. The Templars own the crown. Now who are the modern Templars? Who are the modern Templars? That is the question. The Templars have disappeared. Now, if you, I'm not going to go through my previous lectures where we talk about all the secret societies. You can get them on the DVDs, but I'll just give you a little clue. Here are the Knights Templars. Please note their regalia. Here is a Templar. This is the Templar robe. Notice that he has the sash on the left side with the Templar cross on it. Their main symbol is, of course, the crown with the cross. They have united the power of regalia, of kings, with that of the cross. And they are in control. They control the kings through the Knights Templars. All the Knights Templars' successors. Now, who were the successors? Please note the rope. Look at it carefully. And then let's go to the Catholic Encyclopedia. This comes from the Catholic Encyclopedia here. Is this the same looking robe? Yes or no? Hospitalers of St. John of Jerusalem, also known as the Knights of Malta. The most important of all the military orders, both of the extent of its area and for its duration. It is said to have existed before the Crusades and is not extinct at the present time. Now the Knights of Malta, of course, are in cohesion and collusion with the Jesuits. And there were even wars between Jesuits and the Knights of Malta. And the Jesuits, the black pope, is actually the controlling power 
behind the whole scene. But each of these orders are subservient to him. Now, there are Protestant groups today that are pretended Protestant groups but are actually Knights of Malta. Now, I wonder who would wear a similar robe to that. Being subservient only to the Pope. Because the Knights of Malta are a military papal order. Oh. Fascinating. And there we have our Queen. And she has the regalia of the hospitalers. Now, it's claimed to be the Protestant version. So the Queen meets volunteers from St. John's Ambulance. Her Majesty is Sovereign of the Order of St. John. The emblem of the Order of St. John, the English Protestant ecumenical branch of the Order of Malta, which is a Catholic secret society. Now let's have a look at the Knights of Malta. Here we have the Pope, the present Pope, and the High Commander, the Master of the Order of Malta. He happened to die this year. But Benedict greets the Grand Master of the Order of Malta, Prince Andrew Willoughby Ninian Bertie in the Vatican. Notice that the Prince is subservient to the Pope. And he is the Grand Master. Every Knight of Malta is subservient to him. So who's the Queen subservient to? Must be subservient to him, who is in turn subservient to the Pope. Now, uh, Prince Andrew Willoughby Ninian died in 2008, this very year. And the next one to be appointed is the new Grand Master, Rome, 11th April 2008, the recently elected Grand Master of the Order of Malta, His Most Eminent Highness, Matthew Festing, was received this morning in private audience by His Holiness, Pope Benedict. It's interesting that this is a British Grand Master. And if you are a Grand Master in the Knights of Malta, you have to be royalty. You must have a royal title. You must be king. You must be royal. So this man is royalty subject to Rome. Now there are certain orders in Britain, and all of these form different levels of this secret hierarchy which is by law under the Roman papacy. Now, of course, the Reformation disturbed this for a long time. But the Pope's visit was fascinating. Where did he kneel? At the place where the conflict with Britain started. At the place where Thomas Becket was murdered. When a king decided to suppress the Roman Catholic Church. And the outcome of that was the signing of a document which eventually gave Rome the crown. So when we talk of the crown, it is a ruse to think that the queen has the crown. It is the crown of the Knights Templars. And the knights do homage to the crown. They're not doing homage to the queen. They're doing homage to the Templars and they're doing homage to the Pope. This is the most noble order of the Garter. The Queen is sovereign of this order. Five members of the royal family are ladies of the order, or royal knights, and there are 24 knights. 
and lady companions. And uh, there are three ex-prime ministers, foreign monarchs are present, extra knights, companions, and ladies. This is the inner council that has to do with the affairs of state. And here is the full picture of all the knights of the garter. And uh, I had a fascinating life myself. I actually had dinner once, excuse me, with one of these uh, lordly gentlemen. There he is, sitting in the middle row, Lord Sainsbury. I had dinner with him one evening at the British Consulate in South Africa. And uh, he always came up to investigate our scientific research because I was a Royal Society uh, grant holder. And so I actually didn't know that he was a member of the Garter, but I'm happy to see that he was. Well, the development of Prince Charles. Prince Charles was born Charles Philip Arthur George Mountbatten, Windsor, in 1948, the same year that Israel was birthed. In 1969, his mother made him Prince of Wales, and he became a Knight of the Garter. And he's also the great master and principal Knight Grand Cross of the Most Honorable Order of the Bath. Strange names, eh? It is the Order of the Bath into which President Ronald Reagan and George Bush were knighted after each left office. Very interesting. Here is a military order, and it is given to presidents of the United States. Fascinating. Why order of the bath? Because anciently they used to bathe themselves as a spiritual cleansing. It was of the religious aspect of the order. It had a spiritual connotation. <laughs> Here the queen places the crown on the head of Bonnie Prince Charles in 1969 when he became the Prince of Wales. It's interesting that the Prince of Wales' coat of arms is not part of the Queen's. So the Prince is a sovereign. He has a throne. He's not waiting for one. He's the Prince of Wales. And uh, he's also the Grand Master of the Order of the Bath. And when he was crowned, this is what Queen Elizabeth II said. These are the words. This dragon, because that's the emblem that they chose for Wales, this dragon gives you your power, your throne, and your own authority. His response to her was, I am now your liege man and worthy of your earthly worship. Liege is an old English word meaning Lord. I am now your Lord man and worthy of your earthly worship. Now what does all of this mean? Isn't it interesting? I hope you're interested. Who's the dragon? Did you know that the dragon was the symbol of Rome? It was the symbol of ancient Rome. You'll find it under the ancient Roman bridges. There was always a dragon. And it is part of the Vatican crest. And if you read your book of Revelation in the Bible, then you will see in Revelation chapter 12 that the dragon is a symbol of Satan, but it is also the symbol of Rome whom Satan used to attack God's people and the Messiah himself. 
And if you read in Revelation chapter 13, it is the dragon that gives the beast of Revelation 13 his power and great authority. So Satan and Rome, working in unison, have this authority. And the prince, well, who are you subject to, prince? Well, what's in the name? You know, Pope Benedict, they made a big deal when they chose his name. Do you remember that? And there was a lot of writing about the importance of the name because the name stands for something. So I'm briefly going to go through this history and then we'll have a short break. Charles I of England. Let's just go through these names. Charles famously engaged in a struggle for power with Parliament over England. Now please look at the date. 1625 to 1649. So here... Rome was firm, firmly in control. They had the crown. They had the power. They controlled the kings of England. And then something terrible happened in history. The Reformation came. And Rome lost that power. Not legally, but by force of power. The Reformation threw Rome out. Do you think Rome was going to relinquish that crown? And so the battle over Britain began. The Reformation came in between and there were battles and rivers of blood. And Queen Elizabeth I became this powerful Protestant monarch who overshadowed Europe and made the Bible available to the whole world as a consequence of her actions. Prior to her, they murdered the monarchs and Queen Bloody Mary, Queen Mary, slaughtered the Protestants. And then the Protestants took hold. They were sick to death of all the bloodshed. And Rome tried to get control of the kings. King Charles famously engaged in a struggle for power with Parliament over England. He was an advocate of the divine right of kings and many subjects of England feared that he was attempting to gain absolute power. And he wanted to enforce his power. Religious conflict permeated Charles' reign. He married a Catholic princess, Henrietta Maria of France. So he had Catholic connections. Over objections of parliament and public opinion, he further allied himself with the controversial religious figures, including all of these Catholic-centered prelates. And so the Parliament of England and the Church of England thought he was too close to Roman Catholicism. Charles's later attempt to force religious reform upon Scotland led to the bishops' wars. Then he had wars with the covenanters of Scotland who said, no, no way will I do this. And eventually the outcome of the matter was he was executed. So here was the first king who again said, let's get back to Catholicism. Let's suppress the Protestant churches. He appointed bishops that he wanted in Scotland. The wars came out. It was bloodshed over the country. So here was a Charles who stood up for Catholicism. He paid the price. Cromwell came afterwards. England was ruled by the Puritans and Cromwell. And then came another Charles. Charles II. Charles attempted to introduce religious freedom for Catholics and Protestants and dissenters 
But the English parliament forced him to withdraw it. And in 1679, Totus Ot Revelations supposed the Popish plot sparked the exclusion crisis when it was revealed that Charles's brother and heir was a Roman Catholic. So here was another one who said, I'm very Catholic inclined. And look what he's wearing. He's wearing the robes of the Order of the Garter. There's the blue sash of the Order of the Garter. Isn't this fascinating history? The exclusion bill sought to exclude the king's brother and heir. And he was Catholic, so they didn't want a Catholic monarch. They said the monarch had to be Protestant. Is Rome going to be happy with that? Certainly not. But here's the interesting story. From popery came the notion of a standing army and arbitrary power, formerly the crown of Spain, and now France supports the roots of popery amongst us. But lay popery flat, and there's an end to arbitrary government and power. It is a chimera, a notion without popery. And that king converted to Catholicism on his deathbed. Fascinating. So here were two Charleses that stood up against Protestantism for Catholicism. The one was executed. The next one became Catholic. I wonder what the third one's going to do. Is he going to follow Tony Blair perhaps? No, I don't think he would go that far. He wants to be defender of the faith. And here is his coat of arms. And this is fascinating. And some people speculate about his coat of arms. Because it says at the bottom there in German, although some say it's a perversion of the Welsh, but never mind, it says, Ich dien, I serve. And there is his special little crown with the three feathers, and it says, Ich dien. And then there's the red dragon. Could it mean, I serve the red dragon? Is that possible? This is the red dragon on the flag of Wales and some of the paraphernalia that go along with it has the motto whatever that means meaning the red dragon gives the lead and here it is in its original setting and her majesty the queen of Elizabeth approved the existing red dragon badge which was appointed as a royal badge and it says the red dragon gives the lead Who's the red dragon? Have you got an idea who he is today? Could it be Rome? And that all of these inner circle Knights Templars have a fascinating role to play? Is this possible? Bonnie Prince Charles and Bonnie Prince Andrew, both Order of the Garter, and Bonnie Prince William as he walks off Order of the Garter. We don't have to read all of this. Here he was inaugurated. And Order of the Bath. Well, interesting. You see, we can get the Order of the Bath. The Order consists of the Sovereign, the, the Great Master, who is the Prince of Wales, three classes of members, Knights Commanders, titles of the Order, etc., 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 etc. And uh, here they are. Here he is in his regalia as... Prince of Wales, dressed as the great master of the Order of the Bath and the Queen in her Order of the Bath regalia. And here is Bonnie Prince? Uh, no, 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 no. Bonnie <laughs> Ronald. Bonnie Ronald, yes. Bonnie Ronald receiving the Order of the Bath. 
as did George Bush, and both were knighted to this office. Now you get this for service to the crown. Excuse me, who's the crown? Well, when we come back after a short break, we will get into this history and then we will jump into modern times and we will see where we are going with sustainable development. Are you ready for the rest? Uh-huh. Right, let's start. So here we have U.S. presidents who are knighted as Order of the Bath. And it is amazing who the Queen will knight. She will knight rock stars. She will knight people with the weirdest lifestyles that you can imagine. Surely not. You know, world-class role models for this world. Sir Mick Jagger. <laughs> Sir Paul McCartney. Sir Rod Stewart. Sir Elton John. Wow. Fascinating. Well, there are people that believe, of course, that the United States and Britain play a very important role, and I'll talk about this in a later lecture. There are people like, uh, here we have an interesting example, of people who believe in the Davidic covenant and that uh, the throne of David will always be occupied. And so we have this Israel vision that uh, the kings should be able to trace their lineage back to at least David. Now Prince Charles has this wonderful lineage. He traces himself back not only to David, but to others as well. And is it possible that the princes of the realm are actually sitting on other thrones as well? And there are people, you know, who go crazy on this conspiracy. And they will bring in all kinds of weird conjectures like reptilians and all of this and uh, equating to the dragon to fallen angels, which is not possible because the Bible says angels don't procreate. So what do we have here? Fascinating stuff. So are they descendants from all of these high kings and Zedekiah and all of these? Well, I was fascinated a few years ago when I went to Mormon country. And they are, of course, entrusted with the lineage of people. They have the largest computer-based lineage studies in the world. And there I saw all of these interesting faces all derived from one family. Because they were talking about the present president of the United States. And so you had Joseph Earl and Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon movement, Emma Hale, Sir Winston Churchill, President Roosevelt, President Nixon, President Gerald Ford, President George Bush Sr., President George Bush Jr., all of them from the same family. That's rather fascinating, isn't it? Well, if you do a little bit of a study on this, and you go to the list, this is the books, Burke, Peerage, and 
Baronetage and Burke's landed gentry have for 175 years recorded the genealogies of the UK and Ireland's titled and landed families. And it's fascinating that they list these people as well. Bush, the Bushes, they're closely related to every European monarch, both on and off the throne. Al Gore's family tree includes Charlemagne and three Holy Roman Emperors and England's Edward I. So shall we call him Bonnie Prince Gore? <laughs> Are the titles that I have chosen making a little bit more sense now? Bill Clinton was born William Jefferson Blythe, but took his stepfather's name as a teenager. Clinton's ancestry can be traced back on his mother's side to King Henry III, who ruled England from 1227 to 1272. He is descended from King Robert of France. The Bible talks about the kings of this world, and we're thinking, ah, no kings around, it's all democracies. <laughs> Well, if you do a little study, this is the Wikipedia list, but it's taken from quite good sources as I can see. These presidents all were royal. And that includes George Washington, he was related to Edward III of England, Thomas Jefferson, Madison, Quincy, all the way down. Good grief, every single one of them are royalty. Did you know that both the candidates standing in the present election are royal? Both of them? That's rather interesting. So let's have a look at this honorable order of the bath. It is awarded in recognition of conspicuous service to the crown. Now that sounds so innocuous, but who is the crown? We've studied that now. The crown is the Knights Templars crown. Because it was offered there in the temple of the Knights Templars. And it belongs to Rome. So all of these are knights of the Holy Roman Empire. Serving as Knights Templars in either the central or the outer or whatever committee. Fascinating. Knighthood and honors what Americans have been honored by Britain recently. Recent American recipients of honor include former New York Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. That's interesting. Doesn't he speak in Canada a lot? The newspapers have been quite full of him. And film director Steven Spielberg. I wonder what he's doing to further the kingdom of the Templars. The Knights Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, former Presidents George Bush, Ronald Reagan, Honorary Knights Grand Cross of the Honorable Order of the Bath, Generals Norman Schwarzkopf, Colin Powell, Honorary Knights Commanders of the Most Honorable Order of the Bath, Caspar Weinberger, Honorary Knight Grand Cross of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, the New York Police Commissioner, etc., etc., etc. Isn't this interesting? Here are all these knights. And a knight is a military man. And who is he fighting for? And what are we doing in Iraq? And what are we doing here? And what are we doing there? Come on. America is a sovereign, independent nation. A free nation that broke the yoke. And it is the finest Protestant nation that has ever existed. And that is true.
And this is where the Protestant bastion of the world came to be situated. But let's look at something which could be considered the greatest, greatest deception of our times. Here is an article written by Michael Edward about the ecclesiastical commonwealth. The crown temple by rule of mystery Babylon. The governmental and judicial systems within the United States of America at both federal and local state levels is owned by the crown, which is a private foreign power. Before jumping to conclusions about the Queen of England or the royal families, Britain owning the USA, this is a different crown and is fully exposed and explained below. So we're not going to go into all this. I can leave this for those who are watching the DVD to pause it and read it for themselves. Now the legal system, the judiciary of the USA, is controlled by the Crown Temple from the independent and sovereign city of London. In fact, London is the financial hub of the world. It is the city of the Jesuits. Therefore, it is the city of the Templars. The private Federal Reserve System, which issues fiat US federal notes, is financially owned and controlled by the Crown from Switzerland. The home and legal origin of the charters of the United Nations. So the whole of the United Nations is a crown charter. An international monetary fund, the World Trade Organization and the Bank of International Settlements. It's a real eye-opener to know that the Middle Inn of the Crown Templars has publicly acknowledged that there were at least five Templar bar attorneys under the solemn oath only to the crown who signed what was alleged to be an American Declaration of Independence. Now this is fascinating. This is history. This simply means that both parties to the Declaration Agreement were of the same origin. The Crown Temple. In case you understand, don't understand the importance of this, there is no international agreement or treaty that will ever be honored or will ever have any lawful effect when the same party signs as both the first and the second parties. That's like you selling your house to yourself. The crown cannot sign on behalf of the crown to the crown. That makes no sense. It's merely a worthless piece of paper with no lawful authority when both sides to any agreement are actually the same. In reality, the American Declaration of Independence was nothing more than an internal memo of the Crown Temple made amongst its private members. Americans were fooled into believing that the legal Crown colonies comprised New England were independent nation-states, but they never were nor are today. They were and are still colonies of the Crown Temple through letters, patent and charters. All of these names are important who have no legal authority to be independent from the rule and order of the crown temple. Fascinating stuff. So it appears as if there is independence, and really there is none. They're all dependent and subject to the crown. But not the crown of Britain, because Britain doesn't own the crown. A legal state is a crown temple colony. To have this declaration recognized by international treaty and law, and in order to establish new legal crown entity of the incorporated United States Middle Templar, 
King George III agreed to the Treaty of Paris, September the 3rd, 1783, between the Crown of Great Britain and the said United States. Doesn't belong to Great Britain. The Crown of Great Britain legally was then and now the Crown Temple. This formally gave the international recognition to the corporate United States, the new Crown States. So, very interesting. Most important is to be known who the actual signatories of the Treaty of Paris were. Take particular note to the abbreviation Esquire, following their names, as this legally signifies officers of the king's court, which we now know were Templar courts or Crown courts. The Crown was represented in signature by David Hartley Esquire, now, an esquire is a shield-bearer for a knight. So he's acting on behalf of a knight, an esquire, the shield-bearer of a knight. A middle templar of the king's court representing the United States, a crown franchise by signature was John Adams, esquire, Benjamin Franklin, esquire, John Jay, esquire. So the crown was transferring regality on loan to the crown. And since that day, the rule has been by the crown templars. And that's why they're all of this family. So what is happening in the world and all these votings and all these things really doesn't mean very much. I don't have to go through the whole history I think uh, you can understand the legal implications. My might well call the rule of the world today by many names. You can call it the New World Order if you like. That's what the Bush family favorite is. You can call it the Third Way, as Tony Blair and Paul Glinton called it. You'll call it the Illuminates, the Triad, the Triangle, the Trinity, the Masonry, the United Nations if you like. You can call it the EU. You can call it the US. You can call it whatever you like. They're all crowned. Fascinating. <laughs> because the Pope created the Order of the Temple Knights, the Grand Wizard of Deception, and established their mighty temple church in the sovereign city of London, it is the Pope and his Roman capitals who control the world. Now, this man seems to know what he's talking about. So the crown, the royals, the church, all the churches in the world, and the nations are subject to Rome and not subject to the Queen. And the Anglican Church is not subject to the Queen. And when the Pope went and visited, he showed by kneeling at Thomas Beckett's place, now I have achieved what this war was all about from the beginning. And so this Queen has had to come dressed in black, the color of a liege, a subservient one, a vassal to the Pope. Here she is with Pope John Paul II, dressed in black. She's the queen of the Bilderbergers. Here she is dressed in black. Seems to be her favorite color when she visits the Pope. Huh? Interesting, here is the Princess of Wales, also dressed in black. Here she is dressed in black with the Pope. This was the private audience from the Vatican. 
It's interesting that Diana, the unfulfilled princess, a short phrase from that same panorama interview overlooked by many people, she said, the reason for the surprise interview with the magazine Panorama was they wanted to put me away. I'm not going to go into those details. Let's not go there. So Lord Runcie speaks his mind. When the Pope was there, Runcie was the Archbishop, remember? Archbishop said, I hope I can persuade the church to loosen its strays a bit and perhaps rock the boat a little. The Christian voice must be loud and clear on the great political issues of the time, race relations, unemployment, disarmament. We have to swing from worshipping Christ to serving man. Fascinating. Robert Runcie, a liberal Catholic, says this newspaper article, developed Canterbury's quasi-patriarchal role by frequent visits overseas. As the first archbishop to propose an ecumenical primacy for Rome, he welcomed Pope John Paul II on the first ever papal visit to Canterbury Cathedral. Pope, you are the head. Who is he supposed to say is the head? Christ. But even according to their own stature, the queen is the head. So queen, this crown sits lightly upon your head. It is subject only to your obedience to the crown. And here he said, well, this is like an engagement ring, uh, the official announcement. Let's sign our agreements, Ranci and the Pope. And new Archbishop of Canterbury, show whose boss, kneel, kiss. We all believed the queen was the crown. She was the defender of the faith. Well, she has a problem now and so has her son. He has to become potent defender of faith because Rome has swallowed every religion in her grasp. And the modern Pope and the modern Archbishop of Canterbury, he's really managed to do things. He's really managed to rock the boat. He's opened the floodgates for homosexuality. He's opened the floodgates for all of these issues. And he's strong on Christian-Muslim dialogue. And he says, what we need is a little bit of Sharia law in England. In other words, let's get a little bit of Muslim law into British law. Woo, there was a mighty furor as the archbishop said something like that. But our bonnie prince doesn't seem to mind to put on Muslim regalia. This is fascinating stuff. Now let's go to the royalty in the world and the royalty of the United States. Well, here is Cardinal Egan. And who is he? He is the leading Knight of Malta Cardinal in the United States, and he's always the Bishop of New York. So the one who has that seat in New York, he is the head of the Knight Maltas in the United States. Who is he subservient to? Well, his Grandmaster and, of course, to the Pope. Here he is showing that subservience. Now, who likes to titillate with him? Oh, Hillary. Hillary is with Cardinal Egan. Tony Blair, who has become Catholic, with Cardinal Egan. Well, Prince Bush and Prince Gore 
are also royal, of course, and titillating with Cardinal Egan. Mm, very solemn, the two of them together. And he doesn't mind shaking the hands of the Templars either as they take their common oaths. Isn't this interesting stuff? Oh, and there is Bush Sr. And here is Knight of Malta, Giuliani. They're all there, Giuliani, whatever. Well, what about Prince Obama? Or is he Prince Obama? We've just experienced an amazing presidential election. And there is no doubt that Obama is a charming man and has had a great impact on the world. What about Prince Obama? Well, if you look at Burke's peerage, then it seems that the same applies to Obama as to all the other presidents since Washington. Burke's Peerage London, every presidential election in America since and including George Washington in 1789 to Bill Clinton has been won by the candidate with the most British and French royal genes. Of the 42 presidents to Clinton, 33 have been related to two people, Alfred the Great, King of England, and Charlemagne. 19 of them are related to England's Edward III, who has 2,000 blood connections to Prince Charles. And then this amazing statement from the book uh, Astrotheology and Sidereal Mythology. The Americans have always been owned and governed by the same royal families of Britain and Europe. That conventional history states as being amongst those defeated during the wars of so-called independence. You will recall, however, that the crown does really not own the crown. The crown is the Templar crown as we have seen. So would this mean that every single one of these presidents has secretly been controlled by the crown and that the Knights of Malta is actually in this power position, even there, even with the present president of the United States? Well, here's an interesting article from the Telegraph. McCain and Obama share royal lineage. This is from 2008. John McCain, the Republican presidential contender, and Barack Obama, his Democrat rival, are both descended from the same Scottish king, it has been claimed. According to research by an American genealogist, they share a common bloodline that can be traced to William I of Scotland or William the Lion. It was disclosed last year that Mr. Obama was a descendant of the monarch who ruled Scotland from 1165 to 1214. And his background and upbringing spans the globe. He was born in Hawaii. We know the story. So here is another source which verifies the bloodline connection. So another website talks about this one happy family. And again they refer to the King of Scotland and Henry II of England. He's related to at least six U.S. presidents, Jimmy Carter, Half-seventh cousins, three times removed. Harry Truman, seventh cousin, three times removed. The two George Bushes, tenth cousins, once and twice removed. Woodrow Wilson. He's also the ninth cousin, once removed, of Vice President Dick Cheney. I was watching one of his speeches, and he actually spoke about his cousin Cheney in the White House. So he's fully aware of these bloodlines. So he fits into the scenario, but does he have the same connections 
as all the others? Is he subject to the Knights of Malta? He's a charming man. We have to ask ourselves these questions. Here is a report from the Catholic News Service. Pope sends congratulatory message to Obama, November 6, 2008. He says he assured him of his prayers that God would help him with his high responsibilities for his country and for his international community, Father Lombardi said. The Pope also prayed that the blessing of God would sustain him and the American people so that with all people of good will they could build a world of peace, solidarity and justice. This is the first time in the history of the United States that a president has received such a powerful blessing from a pope. And working towards this one solidarity, are we on the road to the final events predicted in the Bible? Amazingly, there are people on all sides of the divide. Some are saying, is Obama the Antichrist? Well, that's the same. They were asking about Prince Charles. Of course, we know the answer to that. He is not one that can be regarded as an antichrist or the antichrist because the papacy fills that role and it fits it like one of Chubb's keys and it cannot be moved. This is astounding. Here we have the head of the Knights of Malta in the United States, Cardinal Egan. And here he is in deep discussion with both the candidates to the presidential election, McCain and Obama. They both share the bloodlines. They are both knights and they are both subject to this crown order. So nothing has really changed and whether the one would control America or the other is really quite incidental. What is interesting is what we can read between the lines. Here is the actual acceptance speech or the stage that was set for the acceptance speech of Barack Hussein Obama when he accepted the nomination of his party. It is fascinating that the backdrop is that of Pergamum the Temple of Zeus replica. Here's one web page that asks, is Obama the Antichrist? Well, the answer, of course, is no, as we have discussed. It's interesting that his campaign logo was that of the rising sun. And this fascinating backdrop is even more interesting because the Temple of Zeus and Pergamum specifically is mentioned in the book of Revelation as Satan's seat. And Satan's seat is the one that is in Rome because the Bible says the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and great authority, his throne. So this power is residing in Rome. It is the dragon power. It is the same dragon power that has control over Prince Charles. And ich dien, I serve the dragon, is just as applicable in the case of Prince Charles, as it is here, it seems, in this typology over here, in the case of Obama. Now, it's also interesting in history that one previous mega-dictator of fascism used this very emblem when he was 
ordained or initiated into this mega position of Führer. And that was Adolf Hitler. For his inauguration, he also used the backdrop of the Pergamon Museum, just like Obama is doing here. Now, it is fascinating that the political system, that is the political system of Rome, is fascism. Adolf Hitler used this backdrop, and Obama is using the identical backdrop here. In Revelation 2.13, the provincial city of Pergamon is called the seat or the throne of Satan. Fascinating coincidences. Well, he did win the election. He is a charming man. The world is at his feet. He's a change master. And that was his main campaign slogan. We need change. We need change. Change from what to what is the question. Is it from war politics to peaceful politics? Or is it from a system of government to another system of government? Are we now finally moving to that point in history where the kings of the world give their power unto the beast? His inauguration was fascinating as well. He chose none other than Rick Warren to do the inaugural prayer. And there was much speculation beforehand as to whether Rick Warren would pray in the name of Jesus or whether he would not pray in the name of Jesus. His prayer, I believe, is brilliant. It was a masterpiece. And if we look at the backdrops, then it's fascinating. The cousin of Obama, Cheney, is a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. Obama himself is a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. It's fascinating that he should use a pastor who by his own admission is also a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. And this pastor used a prayer which seems beautiful and Christian when you look at it from the surface. But as you can see, the USA Today stated quite plainly that Pastor Rick Warren's invocation uses Jewish-Christian mix. And they go on to say, Warren's invocation began with a fundamental Jewish prayer that declares the Lord is one. He also alluded to a description of God as the compassionate and merciful one that opens almost every chapter of the Quran. Said the historian R.B. Bernstein, who teaches at New York Law School, Warren concluded with the Lord's Prayer, and he did close in the name of Jesus, but he also closed in the terminology that is used in Messianic Judaism, which does not have a personal saviour, but a national saviour, who acts on the public domain rather than in the private domain of the heart. So here we have a Messiah that fulfills all of the conditions, and it is a Messiah that satisfies all of the religious aspirations of the world. Is this the Messiah they need to set up a kingdom in this world? rather than the one and only who will set up a kingdom that is not of this world? These are questions that we need to ask ourselves. And I pray that people will be prepared for the times that we are heading towards. 
And the Prince of Wales working feverishly behind the scenes. What's the final act in the drama? The final act in the drama is the gathering of the world. The Bible says, and all the world wandered after the beast. And they worshipped the beast. Wow. Prince Charles held a two-day international seminar in April 1991 aboard the yacht Britannica, moored off the coast of Brazil, where he's now being honored as the savior of the world. His goal was to bring together key international figures and attempt to achieve a degree of harmony between the conflicting attitudes of Europe, the United States, developing nations led by Brazil over the United Nations environmental agenda. That's the whole world. Senior officials from the World Bank, chief executives from companies like Shell, British Petroleum, principal non-governmental organizations, European politicians, including the British ministers of overseas and the environment. That's the world. We are now going to fight the final battle. We will bring this world together in a unitary government subservient to the crown. Is he the Antichrist? No. The Bible says the world will follow the beast. And that beast is Rome. That beast is not this bonny prince. There are princes doing this work. Implementing the plan. This is being done through the UN Agenda 21. The Biodiversity Treaty, the Law of the Sea Treaty, the Earth Charter, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, and a whole lot of agreements like NAFTA, GATT, NATO, the Treaty of Rome... All of these, they're working together on the royal side, on the British side, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, the Council of Foreign Relations on the United States side, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderbergers function as overseers and watchdogs of the sordid affair. The whole world is falling into the spider web of globalism from which no nation can extricate itself without prompting its own military and economic ruin. This comes from the Sustainable Prince. I think she's pretty close. She just has the boss wrong. <laughs> she has the boss wrong. This writer writes, I'm convinced London is home to the Antichrist, which is why Al Gore's headquarters is head funds in London, rather than in the US. After all, London is home of the Druids, the United Grand Lodges of England, the Theosophical Society. They're all in London. The Society of Psychical Research, the Eugenic Society, the World Wildlife Fund, the Order of the Garter, the Prince's Trust, the, the IBLF, the Prince of Wales Businessmen's Forum, the James Lovelock, Gaia Movement, Benjamin Creams Matreya, they're all in London. But that's where the Jesuits control the financial world from there. Where do you think all the gold in the world has gone? It's certainly not. Certainly not in South Africa. <laughs> no, Anglo-Americans have seen to it that it is whisked away. And we are heading for end poverty 2015. This is the mega movement of the world. We're going to change the world by 2015 and the great meeting is taking place when? 25 September 2008, as we're sitting here, the world is gathering to plan how to get the whole world to knuckle under by 2015. We need a crisis. What are we going to make the crisis? 
Well, let's make the environment the crisis and let's make money the crisis and let's just go ballistic. Hmm. So we have the Business Foundation, the active leaders to announce initiatives as part of the mobilization to reach the Millennium Development Goals, the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals. Fascinating. The Gaia Hypothesis. Well, you've heard about this. James Vian, James Lovelock formulated the Gaia Hypothesis. Holism is what they want. The planet must be elevated above man. Man must become subservient to the planet. Any religion that inverts Genesis 1 is paganism. And so we want global governance, partnership between business and private sector and government, which is fascism. And we want to bring it about now. And Gaia is supposed to take the Judeo-Christian culture and turn it on its head, remove it, and replace it. So UNSET, that's the United Nations Conference on Environmental Development, was called the Earth Summit. And at, Eve, at this one, they unveiled the philosophical shift to Gaia. Now remember Prince Charles is into Gaia, but he's not the boss. The real corporate boss is someone else. And the action program was called Agenda 21, 297 pages long. Global assessment, over 1,100 pages long. And these documents contain an agenda which will control every facet of our lives. It will turn freedom into bondage, life into misery. In feudalistic times, only the king and the nobility owned land and had freedom. So too, under the United Nations rule, feudalistic times will return, the partners will change names. And the feudal landlords will be the corporations, the community will be partners, slaves, in this, and they will be able to pay. With the adoption of sustainable development at onset, man was demoted to the same level as a plant or animal. Let's have a look at some of the definitions. Development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. This sounds very nice. Needs as it pertains to the world's poor, to which overriding priority should be given. And the idea of limitations imposed by technology on the environment's ability to meet present and future needs. Take from the haves, give to the have-nots. Certain sustainable development sets up global infrastructure needed to manage, count, and control all the world's assets. That means your pastures, your rangelands, your farmers' fields, your oceans, your inland waterways, your marine environment, your marine life, your cities, your houses, your sewage, your solid waste, your methods of production, your air, your pollution, your biotechnology, every living thing, every single thing. And then, as a result of this, the Convention on Biological Diversity was signed, putting holism into practice. The Convention on Desertification was signed. The Convention of Climate Change. And these conventions will change the freedoms we have known. You will not be able to move. Here is the Earth Charter Initiative. This is their own web page. The Earth Charter is a declaration of the fundamental principles for building a just, sustainable... I hope these... Buzzwords mean something else by now. P 
peaceful global society for the 21st century. That's one that knuckles under and does what it's told. Created by global civil society, global civil society, endorsed by thousands of organizations and institutions, the Charter is not only a call to action, but a motivating force inspiring change the world over. Listen to what Morris Strong said, who opened the UNSET Earth Rio conference. He was the chairman. This is what he said. The real goal of the Earth Charter is that it will in fact become like the Ten Commandments. Interesting. Do not do to the environment of others what you do not want to do to your own environment. My hope is that this charter will be kind of Ten Commandments. A Sermon on the Mount that provides a guide for human behavior towards the environment in the next century. Who said that? Mikhail Gorbachev from the Gorbachev Foundation. This is a new law coming in, taking the place of God's law. And then Morris Strong hinted at the overtly pagan agenda proposed for a future Earth Charter, when in his opening address he said, It is the responsibility of each human being today to choose between the force of darkness and the force of light. And if you know Alice Bailey and Blavatsky, then you will know that they invert the truth, and light becomes darkness, and darkness becomes light. Lucifer is the illuminated one, the light bringer. They are working on an evil agenda. We must therefore transform our attitudes and adopt a renewed respect for the superior laws of divine nature. That's pantheism. That's pantheism. That's removing God. This is the omega of apostasy. Strong finished with a unanimous applause from the crowd. Let's get rid of Christianity. The Humanist Manifesto says, In order that religious humanism may be better understood, we, the undersigned, desire to make certain affirmations which we believe the facts of our contemporary life demonstrates. We therefore affirm the following. First, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Second, humanism believes that man is part of nature, and that he has emerged as a result of a continuous process. Pantheism. Man is at last becoming aware that he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams. That he has within himself the power of his achievement. He must set intelligence and will to the task. And then I talk about the laws. For this great achievement, man utilizing the resources and the laws of nature which is divine, of course, yet without divine aid can take full credit. We don't need God, we do it. So if we do things wrong, our fault. If we do things right, that's also our fault. So let's do it right and get it right fast. So the world starts going green. After all, the princes are talking in this fascist, outrageous green laws gone bad. Let's read a couple of the headlines. Are we protecting nature or ruining lives? The Guardian of the UK said, Green lords and regulation risk energy crisis, says Europe's power companies. Major projects cancelled because of uncertainty. You cannot move. Is this plant indigenous? Out with it. What's that? An apple tree? It never grew here. Out with it. A guava tree? Woo! Out. 
Are these people nuts? Canada? Yeah, I'm just reading a newspaper. Or a car idle laws. Has Canada gone mad? Here's the deal. Tree huggers in Canada are huffy puffy about people allowing their cars to idle as they warm up. Some extra tax dollars at the expense of the common citizen. Many parts of Canada now have enforceable laws to prevent the act of idling. They are being enforced by fines ranging from 100 to nearly $400. Here is the prince's own webpage. One World Net. Welcome to One World Net. We bring together the latest news and views from over 1,600 organizations promoting human rights awareness and fighting poverty worldwide. Sounds so good. Climate justice for realization of MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals. We have to reach them. Let's use the climate. Global food crisis. Well, if you rip up everything and you're not allowed to grow anything anymore, you're going to have a crisis. A global campaigning action called In My Name. That's not what they're saying here. Global campaigning action called In My Name will be launched by the NGOs, celebrities, and anti-poverty campaigners. The purpose is to garner commitment for monitoring and accountability and to agree to the 2010 NDG Review Summit. Time short. Let's put on some pressure. Who's funding these people? Ford Foundation, MacArthur, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, Rockefeller Foundation, the Philadelphia Foundation. Whoa, these are big guns. This is not short change. These are billions. No, these are mega trillions of dollars behind these things. Hence, extreme disproportions in wealth, income, and economic growth should be reduced. So they're saying, let's redistribute on a worldwide basis. What more daring a goal for humankind than for each person to become an ideal as well as practice a citizen of the world community? You thought you were subject to the crown? I have news for you, Canada. You are subject to the crown. Well, let's have a little bit of a financial crisis. Let's see how we redistribute wealth. How do we get everybody back into a feudalistic society? September 25, 2008, Treasury officials defend Bush's mortgage bailout. All things considered, December 14, 2007, the Senate on Friday overwhelmingly passed a measure to reform the Federal Housing Administration and help some homeowners who are at risk of foreclosure. They're calling it help. Should the federal government bail out the lenders and borrowers caught up in the SIP? prime mortgage crisis. Let's give the banks more money and solve the problem. Who owns them then? The government does. And more people borrow and more problems can follow. Bush urges support for Wall Street bailout. $700 billion Wall Street bailout. Let's do this thing without it. We cannot do it. If they bail them out, who owns them? The government owns them. They bailed them out. He who pays the loan, he has to get the payback. All right, who supports him? Ooh, Gordon Brown backs 700 billion Wall Street bailout. Gordon Brown has announced his support for President Bush. Bailout. 
And he says, the international community must swing behind the plan. I thought America was almost bankrupt. That's a lot of money to get suddenly. From where? The Prime Minister sought to show global leadership amid the international financial turmoil. We are heading for a crisis. Ooh, and here we have the environment and AIDS and all of these things. And we need, as Gandhi says, they say, be the change we want to see in the world. We want to see change. Change means getting rid of that which was so nice. How many people are saying, oh, I long for the old days. Now you're going for the new days. We're going for the new days. And we have a crisis, a mega crisis all over the world. And this crisis is going to increase. And we need some global catastrophe. The environment is everywhere. And our planet is in peril. We need to solve this problem. Or we all go under in the next five years. So we need some global propaganda. Let's look at some of it. These are all the nights in addressing global warming issues. The scientists have made it quite clear. Climate change as a self-inflicted wound, if you like, can wipe out the very meager assets. We have a climate crisis that is a planetary emergency. We are so, so close to the red line that perhaps we may wake up tomorrow and find that there's nothing to save after all. We have reached a point where we have a, a real emergency. The message should be clear. Climate change must take its place along those threats like conflict, poverty. Climate change is responsible for conflicts that can only deepen in the future if we don't act as soon as possible. It's the only thing that I believe has the power to fundamentally end the march of civilization as we know it. You will have a catastrophe, have it uh, to another catastrophe. Climate change means catastrophic environment weather, like wildfires and devastation. Rising sea level, rising food prices, the spread of disease. If the future of the world depended on me, what would I do? The North Polar Ice Cap is melting so fast. But what seems to me to be important is that some of the effects we are witnessing now are happening twice as fast as scientists were predicting just five years ago. A report issued earlier this year by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change concluded both that global temperatures are rising, that this is caused largely by human activities. And if you look at the Earth Assessment Report of the IPCC, we've assessed several stabilization scenarios. In 2010, there could already be as many as 50 million environmentally displaced persons due to climate change, desertification, 
of deforestation. Experts tell us that the situation underlying the crisis is not a temporary one. And it's getting more and more difficult every day. And there's no guarantee that human civilization can survive. The doomsday clock of climate change is ticking ever faster towards midnight. We are simply not reacting quickly enough. Do we need to move faster to answer the question, yes we do, because we have less time than we thought we had? So climate change is obviously going to have a major negative impact. The scale and the pace of environmental change at the beginning of the 21st century are a serious wake-up call to us as human beings on this planet. We know without a doubt that global warming is a reality and the question today is not is it happening and not is it bad but what are we going to do about it. We are all part of the problem of global warming. Let us all be part of the solution. The challenge you face is to prove to people that you are serious about adaptation the unavoidable meat production and consumption is hugely intensive in terms of carbon dioxide emissions. More than all cars, trucks and ships added together. Unless we change our food choices, nothing else matters because it is meat that is destroying most of our forests. It's meat that pollutes the waters. It is meat that is creating disease which leads to all our money being diverted to hospitals. So, um, it's the first choice for anybody who wants to save the earth. The food we eat and how it's grown and the kind of food we eat uh, matters a lot. Everything comes uh, with an environmental price. Uh, beef production in particular. We consume far too much meat in this world. Because there's where the climate problem is, our meat consumption. Something that's harmful even for human health. I think we've seen enough. So there is this huge propaganda that in five years' time we'll all be gone. Unless we act when? Right now. So Bonnie Prince Charles sets out to build a house for his son. A 790 square meter home in England, Wales border, will feature a solar-powered heating, insulation made of sheep's wool. It will include five bathrooms, a dressing room, a grand dining room, a tree garden, and hall lined with Greek columns. He's going to spend his money in a green way. I'm happy to see that. How sustainable can you get? The Mail, online, September 24, 2008. Prince Charles will appear at conference as a hologram. When he went to receive his reward, they said, you flew all this way and you burned so much carbon in your airplane. You're contributing to the greenhouse gas. And so he had himself beamed to the conference. Here's the story. And Prince Bonnie Al Gore did exactly the same. They're becoming green. They are beamable princes. And this is the technology they used, how virtual Charles will use an optical illusion to address the Abu Dhabi Energy Summit and save 15 tons of carbon emission. And this is Bonnie Prince Charles being beamed. But 
time to introduce Prince Charles, but not as you know him. This morning, the Prince is addressing an energy conference in the Middle East, but he won't actually be there. He's appearing as a hologram, a recorded three-dimensional figure. Now, those behind the technology say it'll soon be possible for people to appear virtually from anywhere in the world, like myself. That will be a good idea. That will save some early starts. But what it does save is the vast carbon emitted by flying people around the place. Environment correspondent Catherine Jacob reports. To vanish into thin air and leave not a carbon footprint behind. He may not be known as the most modern of men, but his concern for the environment has catapulted Prince Charles straight into the 21st century. He's been transformed into a hologram for a virtual speech at an energy conference in Abu Dhabi. If he'd appeared in person, his long-haul flight would have emitted around 15 tons of carbon. The virtual version of the Prince of Wales, here he is, is delivering a five-minute speech in Abu Dhabi today, but this message was recorded last year here in the UK at Highgrove. Al Gore also appeared as a hologram at some of his Live Earth concerts last year. The decision to appear as his royal hologram follows stinging criticism last year, when Prince Charles emitted 20 tonnes of carbon flying to the United States to collect an award. Criticism, it seems, he's obviously taken to heart. Catherine Jacobs, Sky News. Now, have you ever wished you could be in two places at once? Well, now you can without even leaving home. Prince Charles today became one of the first to do so when he appeared as a hologram for a speech in Abu Dhabi. And as Catherine Jacob reports, in the future, we could all simply beam ourselves up. Fascinating. Now what's even more interesting is the hype. Let's get the youth on board. How do you get the youth on board? You use rock music, you use programs that excite them, and let's beam on board Bonnie Prince Gore and his dancing beamers. And here he is speaking in Tokyo, or is he?
today here to support us. He's the author of The An Inconvenient Truth and the former Vice President of the United States. Let me introduce to you, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Algor. Thank you. Hello. I'm Al Gore. What an amazing world we live in. I love it that I can stand here on this stage in Tokyo and speak to you in holographic form. It is astounding that in just these recent few decades, we have seen the invention of technologies that enable us to connect and instantly communicate our ideas and intentions and feelings with people on the other side of the globe. Because of the communication channels and technologies that are now available to us, this venue at this very moment is connected to the entire world. You are communicating right now to well over two billion people, including all the live Earth audiences in Sydney, Shanghai, Johannesburg, Hamburg, London, Rio de Janeiro, and New York. And the broadcast audience watching on television and over the internet in more than 120 countries. The human race is also connected by the climate crisis. It is a global problem that transcends boundaries, languages, and culture. The climate crisis has an impact on everyone everywhere on Earth. If we look at the Earth from space, it looks like a blue ball coated with a very thin layer of lacquer. And within that thin layer are all the air, all the water, and all the living beings. This fragile layer is all that we have. It's our only home. And we owe it to our children and our children's children to protect them. With Live Earth, we hope to connect people through the power of music and engage them with a simple universal message. SOS, answer the call. The Live Earth concerts are intended to inspire you 
and a mass audience all over the world to take immediate action and build a global movement for change. You can launch this movement today by pledging to take meaningful and lasting action to make changes in your life. And there are so many areas of our lives that can contribute to the problem and instead can contribute to the solution. Those are the very things that we can change today in order to be a part of the solution. And you can commit to this pledge at LiveEarth.org. As you are making these critical changes in your life, please be sure to call on your leaders and elected officials to do the same thing. Now is the time to begin to heal the planet. Together, we can transform the way we relate to our environment. Global warming is now the greatest challenge facing our planet, indeed the greatest we've ever faced. But it's one problem we can solve. If we come together as one, take action, and drive our neighbors, businesses, and governments to act as well. That's what Live Earth is all about. To all assembled here in Tokyo, at the special event in Kyoto, and all around the world, thank you for being a part of Live Earth. Answer the call. We don't have to look at all of it. But these are the princes of the world. And they pay homage to the crown. Prince Charles speaking at the Energy Summit said, Scientists are now saying that the problem of climate change is now so grave and so urgent that we have less than 10 years to slow, stop and reverse greenhouse gas emission. Common actions are needed in every country. And the one knight gives the other knight, the one prince gives the other prince an award. And you know, I've realized it's like that all over the world. If you want to have a reward, then you better be part of the team. You better be part of the team. I see Meryl Streep is also there. She's in one of my lectures, a very interesting lady. Oh, he gets a Nobel Prize together with the other prominent gentleman. Now, how convenient is this inconvenient truth. Did you know there are 35,000 scientists who've signed a document saying that this is a ruse? There are many, many attacks against them saying that half of them or more than half of them don't amount to very much. But this man certainly does not amount to nothing. Who is this man? He has an interesting story, an inconvenient truth or convenient fiction. Dr. Stephen Hayward, Senior Fellow at the Pacific Research Institute, Weyhauser Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, author of the Annual Index of Leading Environmental Indicators. This is not some fool we're talking about here. And uh, not only that, he has to do with, writes the AEs, the Environmental Policy Outlook, and he produced a host, or he used, uh, produced this thing called Inconvenient Truth or Convenient Fictions. Here's one of his co-workers, assistant professor in agriculture and biosystematic engineering. The problem with Vice President Gore and other global warming extremists is that they distort the science, grossly exaggerate the risks, argue that anyone who disagrees with them is corrupt, and suggest that solutions are easy and cheap. And that's an all-too-convenient fiction.
Perhaps Gore's most disturbing claim is that climate change is not a political issue, but a moral issue. Yet what he wants to do involves large political interventions in the economy and a vast expansion of government power. He says he wants to use markets, but what he really means is that he wants to pass laws making energy much more expensive. That is a truth so inconvenient to Gore's agenda that he conceals it in his movie. One of the defects, I think, of Vice President Gore's approach to this issue is that he begins from a standpoint of philosophical pessimism that sees man as deeply separated from nature by technology. And that's why he calls for things like a wrenching transformation of society to solve the problem of climate change. This seems to me to be very doubtful and maybe even dangerous because it suggests that we can solve some very deep human problems through politics. We've never been able to do that, and I don't think it's compatible with democracy. Well, climate change is arguably the most complicated scientific issue humanity has ever investigated, and it requires the coordination of multiple disciplines in a way that has never been done before. And that's one of the things that makes all the more outrageous the idea that the science is settled, that there are no important uncertainties worth discussing, or that there can be no doubt about the policies we might uh, try to address the problem. I try to simplify the scientific issues for a popular audience without compromising the complexity of the subject. The problem with uh, the Vice President Gore's uh, book and movie could be compared to the Da Vinci Code. It begins with some well-known and well-accepted facts and then goes off to make extreme, exaggerated and fanciful claims that are not well-founded in science. Well, one of the things that he says is that at the current CO2 levels, we will pass the threshold beyond dangerous consequences within 20 years. Does your science say something other than that? Oh, absolutely. Look, there's lots of reasons to doubt that the models... Uh, remember, we're trying to predict the future with computer models. We have a pretty bad track record at that. We're trying to model one of the most complicated phenomenon science has ever studied, and there's lots of confounding literature that appears in the scientific journals almost every week that casts that kind of statement into serious doubt. Anyway, what he does say is that all these claims seem to be reversed. Within one year, the Earth experienced the biggest freeze that it has, and all that ice that disappeared returned in one single year. So there are many issues which are not trustworthy on a scientific level as to what these people are saying. It's interesting when you compare these princes. I'll just use Prince Charles as an example, and I'm quoting here, from Verne, she says, let's compare these two. Charles is the Prince of Wales, Jesus Christ is the Redeemer of the world. The heritage of the British royal family can be traced to 8th century, the lineage of Charles can be traced to the titular kings of Jerusalem, back to Babylon, Charles is Jewish by his father's father. Jesus was before the foundation of the world, he is the great I Am, born in the city of David. The Messiah is Jewish. In quest for an inner meaning, Charles turned to nature, Gaia, the worship of the earth. He believes in the virtues of each religion. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is through the blood of Jesus Christ that man has forgiveness of sins and is saved eternally. We worship the Creator, not the creation. Charles is active on the global levels behind the scene. He works in secret, bringing together key players through the global government movement. The United Nations, he has guided the UN radical environmental agenda, which will change how the world lives, an agenda which leads to bondage. On Jesus Christ, 
The whole mission of Jesus Christ was to redeem man's fallen state through his sacrifice on the cross and provide forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Jesus provides hope to the downtrodden freedom for all who believe in him. All that Jesus did was in the open. He says, I've done nothing in secret. There was nothing ever done by Jesus Christ that was secret. Today's people say, God save the queen. God save the king. As a tribute to the monarch. In Jesus' day they cried, Hosanna. Meaning, save or help now, king. It's reversed. Today people say, or the symbol of the British royal family is the, royal, is the red dragon, which is the symbol of Rome, and which they say they serve. Jesus came as the Lamb of God. He's not the dragon. And he's the Lamb that will take away the sins of the world. And he is the one who will come and conquer. And all these forces subject to the man of sin will disappear according to the Bible. Here's the badge of the Prince of Wales. It's merely a symbol of homage to the crown, to the Templar crown, to the secret societies of the world which are subservient to one master and one master alone. Did you see that red carpet they rolled out for him and how they removed every speck of dust for his holy feet as he was there at the United Nations? Ich dien, I serve the dragon, the one who is Rome. Revelation 13 verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Can we see what the United States is? The United States is merely a crown state. And all that military might and all that military power is there for one purpose. And the people, they can be used as gunfather, it doesn't matter. Revelation seventeen fourteen: These shall make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Here's our choice. We can, we can choose to ignore what the Bible says. We can choose to believe that this world is getting better. Or we can believe the Bible. The Bible says the greatest thing in the last days will be something that Jesus called deception. The disciples came to Jesus and said, When will these things happen and what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And the first words he spoke were, Beware that no one deceives you. Thank you. <laughs> If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.